Herbs are amazing. So think of some of the herbal superfoods. Holy basil is one. Oregano is amazing. And thyme, T-H-Y-M-E, is absolutely potent. But spices in the hierarchy of superfoods, plant-based, I think are absolutely, by and large, the best. Pawpaw, not only its fruit, but its leaves have something called acetogens, which are highly anti-cancer. They cause certain unhealthy cells to self-destruct. So let's make a distinction here. Organic is a system of farming that disallows certain toxic chemicals and requires certain practices. There is no need in organic to improve the soil or the environment. In fact, if you have an organic system and your soil health is maintained year after year, that is just fine. Now, that's better than traditional agriculture, conventional agriculture, where a farmer will literally say, my soil is dead. It only holds plants in the ground. All of my fertility is purchased from the chemical salesman. So that's degenerative agriculture. Organic is maintenance. In some cases, organic could be regenerative, but it's maintenance. Regenerative agriculture requires consistent improvement in your land and on your farm. But I do believe over time, we're going to see a higher amount of beneficial compounds and nutrients in regenerative plants than there would be in simply organic. And then Welcome to Mindful Businesses presented by Sarani and I'm your host Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic and environmental practices. Today we have with us CEO and co-founder of Ancient Nutrition, transforming health with Earth's most powerful superfoods. He joins us from Franklin, Tennessee. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks for having me. As we grow older, we receive recommendations for superfoods, how we should eat particular kinds of foods for our health and our longevity. What are superfoods? That's a great question, and it's a word that is bantered about quite a bit, but I would say the definition of superfoods would be a food, it could include an herb, spice, beverage, protein-rich, carbohydrate, or fat. The key is a superfood has nutrients and or beneficial compounds in greater quantities and variety than a conventional food. So while an apple is healthy, I would argue that an apple is a conventional food, whereas a goji berry, which has not only vitamins and minerals, but specific polysaccharides to boost the immune system in very high quantities, that would be considered a superfood. So where did the term originate? And I've been exposed to it for 25 years, so it had to have been prior to that. And uh, I don't know that anyone claims to be the originator or to have coined the term superfood, but we've been using it since I've been in the nutrition and natural health space. It had to be earlier than a quarter century ago. Give us some examples of superfoods. You gave us an example of goji berries. So give us some other examples. I like to say this, if you look at a hierarchy of foods in general, call it plant-based foods, I think fruits are good. Some are better than others. Goji berry would be a super fruit. Noni, which is one of the worst tasting fruits I've ever had, another super fruit. Low sugar, high in beneficial compounds. 
I would say the North American and European elderberry is a superfruit, very potent by weight, I would say, with certain compounds that are not found easily. So fruits are good. Veggies are better. So on the vegetable side, certain green foods, particularly parsley, kale has been called a superfood because of its high amounts of key compounds. Vegetables are good or better, I would say. Herbs are amazing. So think of some of the herbal superfoods. Holy basil is one. Oregano is amazing. And thyme, T-H-Y-M-E, is absolutely potent. But spices in the hierarchy of superfoods, plant-based, I think are absolutely, by and large, the best. And there are dozens of super spices from turmeric to ginger to clove, which is the highest antioxidant food on the planet, dozens of times more potent than even blueberries. And then you go into nutmeg and allspice and cinnamon. The list really goes on and on. So fruits are good. Veggies are better. Herbs are amazing, but spices are the bomb. That's what I like to tell people. And by the way, superfoods are not relegated to simply vegetable foods. There's fabulous fungi, which are mushrooms. There are amazing animal foods that can be superfoods as well. And even minerals can be superfoods, in my opinion. So if you look at Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, etc., you'll see that these cultures utilize superfoods, some as foods, some as drugs or medicines, some are one and the same. The word superfood seems kind of trendy. Today it's quinoa, the other day it was acai berry, then it's sprouts, microgreens. Why does the list keep changing? Is it because of new research that exposes how valuable these foods are or that people always knew but forgot about it or marketing efforts are bringing them to our grocery shelves and into our kitchens? I think it's a little bit of everything. So you just mentioned a handful of superfoods and all of them, I would say today, are in the category. Quinoa has nutrients that are more digestible and I would say more beneficial than brown rice, in my opinion, than most wheat, rye, and barley. So quinoa clearly is a benefit, more than twice the protein you'd find in wheat. So quinoa is a superfood. Acai berry is a superfood that was popularized I would call it 15 years ago, but there's a superfood in every culture, in every part of the earth that probably is as good as acai berry. I'll give you an example. Jabuticaba or jabuticaba is a Brazilian grape that grows on the bark of trees. And I guarantee you, I've tasted it. I've seen the research. It is just as potent as acai. Then you could look at North America. Aronia berry or choke berry is also as good or better than acai. So I think the answer is these superfoods have been used for thousands of years and they're only now being given a spotlight. I'll give you another example. I'm very into America's forgotten superfoods and we are planting all of these superfood shrubs and trees and bushes. A lot of these were used as medicines by the natives. For example, the American pawpaw, which has been a favorite of many people, including one of our early presidents, Thomas Jefferson, I've never met a person who's tried one. I tried one recently. It's amazing. But pawpaw, it's the largest North American fruit. It's amazing. It's like a cross between a mango, a pineapple, and a banana, but it is so 
perishable that it hasn't become a marketable item, whether it's fresh, frozen, etc. But I believe in five years, we'll be calling pawpaw a superfruit the way we call dragon fruit a superfruit now and the way we called acai a superfruit five to seven years ago. So the encyclopedia is growing, but these are not new foods. They're ancient foods that are being rediscovered and being highlighted or a bright light is being shown on them. I have been fortunate enough every summer to eat pawpaw. There is a farm stand during a summer farmer's market where a person, it grows in his backyard or in the forest by his home and he brings it. And I buy that every week. Nobody in my family really cares about it as much as I love that fruit. It's yeah, it's just a combination. But I didn't know it had you know major nutritional value. I liked it for the taste. Absolutely. Pawpaw, not only its fruit, but its leaves have something called acetogens, which are highly anti-cancer. They cause certain unhealthy cells to self-destruct. Amazing. And it's related to various tropical plants in the Anona family, such as soursop, graviola is another name, cherimoya. These are available in Africa, South America. So this is a family member in North America of those tropical fruits. And we grow all of them either indoors or outdoors on our farms. And so we are very passionate about those. But the point is, Vidya, pawpaw is centuries old, but it's going to be 20 years from now, the new superfood. So certain foods have not been hybridized and uh, bred for certain genetics. And some like pawpaw has not really been selectively bled. Raspberries have. So it's not about what's the best for you. It's about what is most conducive at the time to, I'll call it agricultural propagation. But I do hope pawpaw has its day in the sun. You led me to the next question. There was an article that I came across published by the Harvard School of Public Health. They are equating superfoods to super sales. So if it is profitable to bring back these almost endangered plants, fruits, crops, herbs, fungi, then it will actually re-enter the markets. Absolutely. But it doesn't have to be rare fruits. If you look at advertising over the last decade, the National Blueberry Council now calls blueberry a superfood, and they should. The Cranberry Organization talks about cranberries benefits, and they should. These are berries that have been highly produced, highly bred, nothing against that. They're selected for their properties that the palate would enjoy, and they very much belong in the superfood or superfruit categories. But I do agree with you that there is this idea that the new kid on the block is always more exciting. And we looked at mangosteen and noni and goji and acai, those were sort of a sequence of superfruits. Then it was aronia that I mentioned, and there's so many others. There's a spice that grows like a weed in North America and around the world called sumac. We kind of associate it with the sumac that can cause poison sumac, but sumac berry, which is used as a spice in the Middle East, it grows plentifully in my area. It's powerful. You see them, the purple or the red Berries, some of them are conical in shape, some go down, but we're harvesting sumac and using it 
in some of our products because it's an amazing source of vitamin C, of other flavonoids, and it grows wild, and it grows with virtually no pesticides, herbicides, or fungicides. So to me, sumac should be a superfood in the future. But instead of superfoods, what if we just focus on super plate? Because, you know, this trends, this ebbs and flow of different products, marketing efforts confuses me. I would just rather have a super plate, which is consistent and is balanced, containing fruits, vegetables, grains, and healthy protein. I don't disagree with you 100%, but let me give you an example. So you just painted a picture of a plate. So let's say that you've got vegetables. So we have carrots. Fruit, we have banana. Protein, we have white meat, chicken. And grains, we have brown rice. That's a healthy plate. But what I would call a super plate, now bear with me here, is we're going to use a fruit that uh, we'll call it persimmon. So persimmon is extraordinarily high in antioxidants and lower in sugar. It's really great fruit. I would say that's healthier than banana. That's an upgrade. Instead of brown rice, let's use black or purple rice, which would be higher in anthocyanins. That's a superfood version. For a vegetable, carrots are fine, but let's use Talk about the microgreens that you mentioned before, where you're eating a small amount of a micro onion or watercress or something that is so pungent that has dozens of times more nutrients. And then for protein, instead of white meat chicken, how about dark meat duck, where you've got higher sources of zinc and B12. So my point is, I like the designation of superfood because it goes beyond the average healthy organic plate and there is an opportunity to upgrade. And so for me, brown rice is fine. It's got some vitamin E. It's got some B vitamins. Black rice or purple rice has more antioxidants than grapes. So now you're getting the same taste, the same amount of calories and carbohydrates, but you're boosting your body's antioxidant levels. So that when we say at our company, Ancient Nutrition, saving the world with superfoods, our goal is to use superfoods to upgrade one's diet. And by growing these superfoods, we believe we can heal the planet as well. So that's the save the world double entendre, if you will. Some of these superfoods are like blueberries, which we see in a grocery store. They're not as novel as acai berries or the microgreens. Primarily, we are working with heritage plants and plants and shrubs, or does gene modification change the properties of a superfood. Let's use blueberries, for example. So if you are a purchaser of frozen blueberries, you'll notice that there are two kinds people talk about. There's blueberries and there's wild blueberries. Now, interestingly enough, the wild blueberries are not wild. (laughs) They're still cultivated, but they're smaller, they're less sweet, and there's more skin and less of the pulp, call it, or the fruit flesh. So I personally love the taste of the big, fat, blueberries that you get in the summer, but they're higher in sugar, lower in fiber, and lower in antioxidants. Whereas wild blueberries, which you'll find in the northeastern United States, Maine is the sort of hallmark, Michigan will have them. Those are much more nutrient-dense, a little more bitter, a little more sour. So in that case, they've both been cultivated, not gene-altered, but selectively bred, hybridized perhaps, but within a common fruit I believe that wild blueberries have two to six times more antioxidants than blueberries. Organic 
versus organic, conventional versus conventional. So even within a food, you can find a version or a variety that will give you more bang for your buck. Uh, We talked about purple or black rice. There's purple cauliflower. There's purple green beans. Talk about confusing. So there's corn and then there's blue corn and then there's purple corn. So we have over the years really looked at what are the best expressions of each fruit or vegetable. I'm sure you've tried purple potatoes. They're amazingly delicious and loaded with nutrients. Same with purple carrots. So I believe there's room for these type of designations within our common foods, such as sweet potato, blueberry, etc. But certainly, I believe the world needs to know about soursop. The world needs to know about jackfruit, and they are learning. Passion fruit and guava are absolutely amazing. Dragon fruit is getting to be popular called pataya, but what about prickly pear or cactus pear? That's equally amazing and a similar source of vitamin C and something called betalins. So turmeric, we talked about that. So popular now in America and of course in Ayurveda. We're growing golden turmeric, we're growing black turmeric, and green turmeric. All of them have different nutrients and compounds that all complement each other. And is one better than the other in certain areas, but they're all beneficial. I would consider black turmeric and green turmeric more novel. And so those are exciting, but there is a plethora of foods, herbs, spices to enjoy. And I believe there is a good, better, best in each and every one. These different types of turmerics, are they hybridized? No, these would be heirloom, but it's more of an anomaly. So think about it this way. You plant 100 turmeric rhizomes or crowns, and out of those 100, you might get one that is darker in color that has the purple or black pigment. And what's amazing is you may have seen turmeric growing. You see the leaves, you don't see the rhizomes. The purple or black turmeric, there's a purple stripe in the leaf so that you know that it's going to be that purple or black turmeric. But what do you do when you harvest those 100 rhizomes that turn into a thousand plants? What you do is you find the one that is black or purple and you propagate that and there you have it. So when you're looking at purple corn or black rice or black quinoa, these are not genetically modified. They are selectively bred for a certain characteristic. Same with purple carrots and purple sweet potatoes. In the past, everyone wanted cookie cutter. They want red round tomatoes, but now some of us like yellow and orange and purple tomatoes. The heirloom varieties are becoming more exciting. So now instead of getting rid of the anomalies, we're embracing them. I'll give you another example video, which may be a little off the beaten path. I love duck eggs. I think duck eggs are three times better than chicken eggs. Clearly a superfood. This morning, I cracked a duck egg and got a double yolk. I consider that a double blessing. I'm always excited when I see that. What people try to do in the egg business, they put a candle on all the eggs and they throw out all the double yolks because they're weird or strange. Whereas me, I'm the other way around. Give me every double yolk you've got because it's 50% more nutritious. It looks weird, but I'm all about the nutrition. So at one point I made a joke. I said someone should come up with a food company called uglyfoods.com because sometimes when you look at tomatoes, potatoes, herbs, and spices, the ugliest is the most nutritious. This point, I think it would be great to distinguish between natural anomalies, 
hybrids, and GMO. In a genetically modified plant, sometimes there could be a gene from another species to give you the property of the other species. That is the difference between GMO plants and hybrids or the anomalies created by nature. Absolutely. So I'll give you a perfect example. We are infatuated with seedless fruits and in some cases, vegetables. So seedless watermelons, you don't have to spit out the seeds. Seedless navel oranges, seedless grapes, those are more in the hybridized category. But then you're looking at a sugar beet that is resistant to the common pests of sugar beet because a gene was altered or infused into the beet from a species that is resistant to the pest. Does that make sense? And it's very wide ranging. So you could get a gene from a fish that is resistant to a certain pest put into a sugar beet to determine if that will cause the sugar beet to be resistant to a pest. That's genetic modification. Hybridization is not perfect. It's not without its issues, but it is a lot less dangerous to human health and the environment than a genetically modified organism that is designed to resist a pest. Frankly, a plant should be subjected to a pest if it's weak. We need strong plants. We need strong animals. We don't need to prop them up with genetically modified organisms, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. On our farm, I don't want to use the term survival of the fittest because I am absolutely not in agreement with all of that philosophy. But I will say this, if I have a line of sheep that are prone to foot issues or parasite load, I do not want to propagate that line through breeding, right? So I believe that in the cases of plants and animals, if we let nature take its course, the strong will survive and the weak won't. Unfortunately, with genetic modification, we are changing the rules of the game and it has consequences far beyond what we've even thought of. So you're joining this call from Franklin, Tennessee. Did you spend most of your life in that town? I've spent most of my life in South Florida, so Palm Beach County. I've been here a little over five years and uh, still getting used to the winters, which most would consider mild. But no, I am not a native Tennessean. And were you always a farmer? How did you start this? What was your journey? I was absolutely not a farmer. I grew up in the suburbs, kind of a kid in a concrete jungle, so to speak. But I became very ill as a teenager. I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and 18 other illnesses. So if somebody's interested, they can type in my name on Google Images and you'll find at some point a before and after photo because when I was at my worst, I had my mom take my picture, 104 pounds, dying. And I'm so glad I did. That was in the early 90s. But in my process of recovery, I learned that food was medicine. And I also learned that the most important foods are not easily available. And the seed, pun intended, was planted in my heart that one day if I wanted to continue the health that I was able to regain, I needed to be a part of growing and raising the world's healthiest foods. And so I was not a farmer at all, had no background. But in 2009, I purchased land and began regenerative farming. And boy, I've learned a whole lot over the last 13 years. I think you raise a really good point about how food can be medicine. Let's move on to regenerative farming. How is that different from organic farming? Because we talked about the organic blueberries. If you were growing regenerative blueberries, how would that be different? 
Uh, it's a great question. So let's make a distinction here. Organic is a system of farming that disallows certain toxic chemicals and requires certain practices. There is no need in organic to improve the soil or the environment. In fact, if you have an organic system and your soil health is maintained year after year, that is just fine. Now, that's better than traditional agriculture, conventional agriculture, where a farmer will literally say, my soil is dead. It only holds plants in the ground. All of my fertility is purchased from the chemical salesman. So that's degenerative agriculture. Organic is maintenance. In some cases, organic could be regenerative, but it's maintenance. Regenerative agriculture requires consistent improvement in your land and on your farm. Now, to answer the question, there's a difference between regenerative land and organic farming. I can't tell you what the difference is between an organic blueberry and a regenerative blueberry, but I do believe over time we're going to see a higher amount of beneficial compounds and nutrients in regenerative plants than there would be in simply organic. And then it gets even more confusing. There's regenerative organic, which first has to be organic, then regenerative, but there are also some regenerative certifications where you don't need to be organic. So for us at Ancient Nutrition, our regenerative farming practices are going to include certified organic, regenerative organic, and we're getting certified by the Environmental Outcomes Verification Program, which means they're going to track our soil health, our diversity, our water holding capacity, that we are making sequential improvements each and every year. So what is the definition of regenerative organic? To improve the landscape, the soil, and the environment each and every year, better yet, each and every day. So you don't till the soil, you use crop cover for soil conservation. What are the other methods that you would use? There is not a hard and fast rule against tillage, but it is minimal tillage. I'll give you an example. So we are planting 1 million perennial superfood bearing trees, shrubs, and bushes. We need to till to get those trees in the ground. I shouldn't say we need to, we're choosing to. But once we till, that's it. So Lord willing, decades, centuries go by and these trees are still there, still feeding people, still providing shade and an environment for wildlife with one tillage pass over a century. You can be regenerative and use tillage with certain crops, but it's required to have a rotation and that rotation has to increase. You start rotating two crops and to have the highest level of regenerative organic certification, you need to have a seven crop rotation. And think of it this way, one crop you till, maybe it's tomatoes or carrots, six you establish with no-till. So it's a decrease in tillage, whereas in organic, you can till till the cows come home. We believe that minimizing tillage, minimizing soil disruption is ideal because you want those microbes to be able to have the oxygen and have all of the nutrients that are released through tillage. So it's not no-till, but you try to get as close to a zero-till process as humanly possible. How large is your farm in Franklin? 
We have one farm in Tennessee that is 133 acres and a farm in Missouri that is 3,930 acres. So both of those are part of what we call our ranch project, which is uh, stands for Regenerative Agriculture, Nutrition, and Climate Health. So each of those farms will be the first ever certified regenerative organic in their respective states. So we hope there's dozens and hundreds, but we will be the first ever, which is super exciting. So the farm, which is 3,000 plus acres, and I'm assuming in regenerative farming, you're not using machines. I know you use machines, but it depends on what you use machines for. So we use a no-till drill, for example, to plant our cover crops. It's actually much more effective than other ways. We use a permaculture tool called a yeoman's plow or a keyline plow that goes a very short way into the soil, really just into the sod, to encourage water holding capacity. We use other machines to clear land that is not suitable for proper food production, and then we'll reestablish many more trees that are super food bearing. So we do minimize our equipment, but you can absolutely use equipment in the regenerative systems. You just need to use it the right way. We also have a compost system that is machine-based, so you absolutely use machines. The real idea here is to minimally disrupt the soil. What are the plants that you grow? So in Tennessee, we have over 100 what we would call superfoods and medicinals that we're growing. We have about 50 of them are indigenous outdoor plants, and then we have another 50 or more that we're successfully growing indoors. But here's something unique. To be regenerative organic, you can't grow a plant in a pot. It has to have root contact with the soil. So when you establish a greenhouse, the plants have to be in the ground, which is a big distinction from organic and other methods. So what we've done, we were growing our tropical, exotic, and medicinal plants in these soft pots to allow for self-pruning. Now we've had to cut the bottom out, and they're making soil contact. So guess what? It's an important decision to determine what's going to go in each greenhouse. But I'll give you some fun examples. So outdoors, we grow, I mentioned pawpaw, persimmon, we grow aronia berry. We grow multiple species of walnuts, which I think are absolutely amazing for their nutritional value. We grow elderberries. We grow mulberries, multiple varieties. We grow apples. I prefer crab apples, believe it or not, because they're higher in nutrients and beneficial compounds and lower in sugar. That's just a few that we grow outdoor. Indoor, we grow jackfruit, soursop, sacred fig, which is a fig variety that grows to 100 feet tall. We grow dragon fruit, cactus pear, cacao, noni, coffee. I'm going to have to think more about a cherimoya. The list goes on and on. So I planted over 130 tropical varieties in 2020, and we're now learning which ones are most successful. I left off guava and passion fruit and papaya, which work extremely well. Here's what I just consider a miracle. I bought three papayas from my health food store. I planted, I'll call it 600 seeds. Papayas are loaded with seeds. I have 488 mature papaya trees, and many of them are fruiting in just a year and a half. Same thing with guava. I bought guava from the store, planted the seeds. Same with passion fruit. I planted passion fruit less than two years ago, and I'm already on the third generation where I've planted the seeds from the fruit, and it's just absolutely unbelievable. This is 
the most amazing economic miracle you can think of in the world, the fact that there can be hundreds of seeds in a fruit and you can get trees and bushes and vines from every single seed. How can you, knowing that, throw one away? I have not thrown away an avocado seed in two years. We plant every single one. Now, that's just one seed per avocado, but I love it. It's our heritage. How can we be just callously tossing them in the trash? So Monsanto is not involved in any of these seeds. I sure hope not. Yes, that would be a big problem. (laughs) Yeah, so what I'm getting at is that these fruits have not been modified to not propagate from their seed. Yeah, these are all open pollinated. Yeah, because obviously papayas are one of the fruits that have been genetically modified. So we're buying them in places where GMO inclusion is not allowed. So yes, you need to buy open pollinated or you will grow something you don't want or nothing at all. Or I guess be breaking the law if you're growing a seed that is supposed to be a terminal variety. And uh, look, if anything's called a terminal seed, I'd be really concerned to consume it. So you talked a little bit about ranch. And how is ranch connected to nutrition? Ranch is a project of ancient nutrition. So ancient nutrition is devoting 1% of sales to the ranch project. So the 4,000 plus acres that ancient nutrition is directing is the entirety of the ranch project. So all of the agricultural activities are funded and directed by Ancient Nutrition team members, starting with myself. So uh, we are one of very few brands that have our own farming activities where our team and our resources are being devoted to agriculture. And, And really, if you boil it down, virtually every Ancient Nutrition product that's purchased plants a tree. And we do it ourselves. We don't donate to someone to plant a tree. We are planting the trees. We are going to harvest the superfood material and it's going to go right back into our product. So it's a very nice, virtuous cycle. So what do you do with all your harvest? So we're in the process of developing products based on our harvest. But the simple answer is our harvest goes to provide ingredients for ancient nutrition products. Number one. Number two, it goes to feed the animals. Number three, it goes to our compost to feed the soil. So one of those three things happens with all of our biomass that we produce. So you don't sell the actual fruit, you convert it into products at Ancient Nutrition. Correct. And we do have plans and we will utilize some of these foods to donate, to provide. We have a really great program right now. We call it Trash to Treasure. So we are picking up food waste from three local health food stores and restaurants who want to be food waste free. So I don't know if you know this, but estimates are that 40% of our food in the world is wasted, 40%. So in just a matter of months, we have picked up 20,000 pounds of food waste from these local food businesses and we're feeding it to our chickens, turkeys and ducks, which in turn fertilize our land and we're making it into compost. So not only are we able to provide nutrient-rich superfoods in our products, but we are taking the food waste from some of our favorite establishments and we're ultimately going to provide some foods back to them, such as eggs, that were generated largely from that food waste. The products that you make, they are in a form of a tablet or syrup. How are they made? What is their form? Yeah, we have powders, tablets, capsules, tinctures, which are liquids, 
and gummies. And then our powders are in different forms. So gummies are newly launching, but those are all the form factors that Ancient Nutrition offers. We have had bars in the past. We do not have food bars today. So why not let people eat these nutritional foods in their natural form? Why would you want to make it in a pill? Is it just that we would have to consume very large quantities to get the comparable benefits from a pill? For instance, you could get probiotic by eating yogurt with active cultures as against eating a probiotic tablet. Is that what your products do? Well, first of all, take a probiotic. For example, yogurt does contain probiotics, but they're generally very weak. So the probiotics we use actually are found in healthy soil and on fermented foods. So they're a little bit different than what you would get from yogurt. But the question for us, why don't we sell food? We're not in the food business. It's not to say that we don't believe in that. We believe absolutely that food is the best medicine and supplements are in addition. So if you're asking, do I think it's better to get all of your nutrients from food versus supplements? If you can, absolutely. It's very difficult to do, which is why supplements become valuable. And in our case, all of our ingredients, we try to upgrade them through fermentation or some type of extraction to make them more potent. But absolutely, if you can get all your nutrients from foods, it is the best way to do it. But I don't know anybody on a regular basis who consumes foods that allow them to have trace minerals in the right amounts, certain vitamins in the right amounts. It's really, really difficult. And I eat as well as anybody. And in order for me to get what I need, I have to order fish roe from Alaska. I have to consume natto, which is a fermented soy product, which tastes like dirt mixed with sweat socks. I have to consume liver. The list goes on and on. So it is very difficult to get everything you need from food, but it is absolutely ideal. So you grow these crops, plants, trees, convert them to superfoods. Who regulates them? Do they need regulation at all? Yes. So the farming practices are regulated by the USDA. If you have anything that's organic, it's regulated by the USDA, but the FDA regulates all consumable products, foods and drugs, and the FTC sort of regulates how you market and communicate. All of the facilities are inspected by either the FDA or the local health and food safety organizations, and then there are third parties that would verify you are certified in a good manufacturing practice. So there's a lot of certifications, a lot of third-party regulations. Some we do on our own, some are required, but primarily food is regulated by the USDA and supplements are regulated by the FDA. Do any of your products tout the benefits on their packaging or in any marketing material? Absolutely. So in our uh, dietary supplement industry, we are allowed to utilize two types of claims. One would be called a structure function claim, and one would be a qualified health claim. So for example, we have a collagen formula that has a key ingredient that has been clinically studied to reduce post-exercise soreness by 56% in as little as one day. So in addition to supporting joint health, supporting skin health, et cetera, et cetera. So when you have a dietary supplement, you utilize language such as supports healthy inflammation response, not reduces inflammation. Or you can say if you've got the right research, reduces 
occasional aches and pains, but you can't say flat out relieves pain. You can't make disease claims, so to speak. So there's a a pretty strict regulatory compliance function in our industry. And the companies that are more responsible are going to follow it or they will face severe consequences. And I've been through that and I choose to be on the responsible side or the responsible camp. So nobody's monitoring your claim. The only person who could potentially look into your claims, mild exaggerations say, could be the FTC? The FTC is the sort of uh, watchdog when it comes to marketing, but the FDA and the FTC have a little bit of crossover. So if you make a drug claim, you are in violation of the FDA and the FTC. So for example, if your website has unsubstantiated claims, the FTC and FDA have purview over that. Not to mention the fact that there are consumer watchdog groups, activists, and a very active plaintiff group out there. So attorneys general tend to jump in if need be. There is quite a bit of regulation, but I think what you might be getting at is the question, are natural products requiring pre-approval like pharmaceuticals? And the answer is no. There is no pre-approval. The barrier of entry is low, but I'll give you an example. Whole Foods Market reviews all of your claims and all of your labels, and they actually have more stringent standards than the FDA. Costco does the same thing. Many Retail accounts have their own regulatory team, and they will not allow your products to come in unless they pass all of their standards. So the industry has done a great job, in my opinion, of being regulatory compliant for safety and efficacy. Are there fly-by-night companies on Amazon? Absolutely. But even Amazon is clamping down on illegal claims. So I think we're in a much better place than we used to be. But when you create these products, they are based on scientific research or in scientific evidence, which tout the benefits of these different foods. The supplements we formulate have a combination of, I'll call it historically relevant ingredients and clinically studied ingredients. Clinically studied natural ingredients are in their infancy. So there's very few. However, if we formulate a product and we want to make a claim, we need to include a clinically studied ingredient at the clinically studied dose, whether it's a probiotic, a collagen ingredient, a protein. So the answer is most natural products are a combination of ingredients that we believe to be effective, that are historically proven, and those that are clinically studied, utilizing what you'd call the gold standard of research. So where do you go from here? You're growing traditional plants, the heirloom crops, the superfoods are made into supplements. What are your future plans? We have an extensive amount of products that we are researching and developing and an even more extensive plan for regenerative agriculture. So we're starting, literally weeks ago, a 14-year plan to show that we can feed the entire planet on a much smaller footprint than ever believed possible. So we're doing it on a small scale, 4,000 acres, but we're going to prove which of several regenerative strategies will work for a vast majority of the planet in the climates that are similar to Missouri and Tennessee. So that's a long-term plan. And in the process, we believe we're going to rediscover dozens of superfoods and 
reintroduce them to the world, pawpaw included. So uh, we want more and more of our products to contain ingredients we grow, and we want to prove objectively that you can regenerate the soil, rebuild the ecosystem. We want to prove that the UN was wrong when they said we only have 40 to 60 years of farming left. And if we can do that, it will be one of the greatest, I would say, successes in history. Turning the tide, getting back our heritage, going from no topsoil back to feet of topsoil, and human health, environmental health, and animal health will follow. So we have a big vision. Saving the world with superfoods is our mission statement, but my personal mission statement is to heal the planet, feed the world, and eradicate disease. And we can't do that until we prove it on a small scale. So it's ambitious, but I believe it's doable. Thank you again so much, Jordan, for coming on Mindful Businesses. Until the time we see Papa on our grocery store shelves, hopefully soon. I hope we meet again soon. Yes, thank you so much. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, hosted and produced by Vidya Ayer. We'd love to hear from you. Send a voice note with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gaya. Our marketing assistant is Caitlin Milligan. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashricha. This is Vidya Iyer with Mindful Businesses.